Welcome to On The Bubble Podcast, episode 35. I'm your host, Subasa Jaywida, and with me is my co-host, Yuki Lee Bender. And today, we're just going to be talking about PT Baltimore that just happened this weekend, two days ago. We're just going to be talking about Yuki's CC deck that she played in that event as well. So, how was Baltimore? Yeah, Baltimore was actually pretty good. I know that a lot of people were not very excited that the PT was announced to be in Baltimore. Um, I actually quite enjoyed it. It might have been the neighborhood we were in was pretty cool. Um, there was a lot of good food, actually. I was surprised at how good the restaurants were. Like We had good Japanese food. We had good Mexican food. I guess mostly those two cuisines. But it felt like just like everything we had was good. Even the airport food when I was leaving was like very respectable for airport food. It was decently above average um so so yeah overall like i actually quite enjoyed my stay in baltimore i thought the the at least the small area we explored kind of like by the inner harbor there and just south of that was all pretty nice people were pretty friendly lots of good restaurants and just yeah overall enjoyable experience so like it wasn't like as what's it called as sketches like what people were talking about beforehand I don't think it was too bad. Um, there was definitely one day where we kind of walked over to somewhere um, to have dinner, and the walk over there seemed bad. Uh, seemed seemed not bad at all. But as we were going to leave, we were kind of like, "There's like nobody walking around on the streets, and they're pretty dark, and it feels like kind of out there." And we're like, hmm, "Maybe we should just get a uh, get an Uber to to play it safe." So I, I think like. I don't know. Probably makes sense to travel in groups, especially in the evenings. But it also didn't feel yeah. Well, it didn't feel that dangerous. No, not not really. And and I think it probably. I'm sure that it depends on the neighborhood you're in. But yeah. um, at least by the inner harbor, there was it was pretty good. I actually, really enjoyed it. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah the the banquet for the PT was also pretty good, pretty above average. I felt like um, I didn't really enjoy the banquet at worlds or Lille. Uh, worlds was obviously a disaster with like the huge pizza lineup that you had to line up to get in then you had to line up to get pizza and then you got there and there was no pizza yeah um even if i wasn't at the very end of that line of like to get in and by the time i got in they were just like oh no food and we're just like oh and then there was like impossible to get drinks they gave you like a drink card and it's like impossible to use it because the lineup for the drink was like way too long. Basically, it was like the venue was too small for the number of people that showed up. And I think a lot more people showed up for World's Banquet than they were expecting. So yeah, it did definitely feel like they kind of didn't budget enough space or, or they didn't appropriate allocate space. So yeah, this this banquet uh, and reception went a lot better. It was actually in the convention center. Um, I think I think the first one in New Jersey is maybe still my favorite, but like the food was pretty good. There was no lineup to get in. They didn't have the weird stuff like in Lille. Um, you had to register and say that you were going to the banquet, and if you didn't register, even if you were playing for the PT, you couldn't go. And so there was like some number of people that just like didn't know and they showed up and they waited in the lineup to get in and then it's like oh yeah you you can't go in and even though all your friends are going in so that was like really disappointing and i think just getting rid of that and just letting people who are registered go into the banquet was like it's like a small thing but it it, it matters a lot i think yeah well 
I can also understand that or the organizing side. It's probably like very difficult to organize a banquet without having like a a checklist of like who's going and who's not going. Because if like a significant amount of people don't show up, it's like a huge waste of money too. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That that it also just makes sense that like the people who qualify for the PT, you can just assume they're gonna go, and like if they can't make it for whatever reason, like so be it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, but yeah, overall, like I thought it was pretty nice. The venue was pretty spacious, pretty decent. The Wi-Fi in the venue was like limited to a very small area by the judge stage, but I mean. It was good. I liked it. Yeah, it's not too bad, right? Like, I guess, did you end up reporting um, by going up to the judge station then instead of using your phone? Yeah, a lot of time I did that. Or sometimes I was just asking my opponent to report because I didn't have I didn't have Wi-Fi. I was just like, do you have data? Because I don't. And if you can do it, that's very convenient for me. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, like when you play these international events, like the cell phone service issue comes up where it's like, if it was like in Canada, then we would probably have service. But like when we travel to the US, we won't have service unless we like pay some ridiculous amount. Yeah, I think it's like 14 or $15 a day, which I mean, even if you're only there for how long was I there? We got in Wednesday, left on Monday. So it's like six days. It's already like 90 bucks for just for the cell phone, which is like, I don't know. Not worth it. It's not worth it. It, it really isn't, especially when you're like, you know, at an Airbnb playing games with friends or you're like out for dinner or you're at the venue. Like you're not doing stuff where you have all that much time to use your phone. And probably when you have the most time is when you're back at the hotel or Airbnb and yeah, you have Wi-Fi there. So it's just like really like not only is it really expensive and kind of not worth it in general, but you also just aren't getting that good use out of your your phone on the weekend, at least in my experience. Yeah. Now, for myself, I don't even have like any cell phone service, even in Canada. So, yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Leona, let's move on to the, um, how was the PT itself? How did you do? The PT itself was all right. Um, I was a little bit disappointed with how I did. I went, so it was four rounds of CC, three rounds of draft, and then day two was all four, three records and better. And you did three rounds of draft and then four rounds of CC, and then I cut to top eight on the day three. My day one, I played against four Oldhams in Swiss, which <laughs> is fine. Um, I, I felt okay about the matchup, just definitely draining, like they're long games. Most of my opponents were trying to fatigue me. Um uh, three three of the oldums were playing pretty defensive fatigue lists, and then one was playing more mid-range. I ended up going two and two in CC. I think some things kind of just really didn't line up my way. Like I went in all in in one game I went all in on a Rain Razor's double three of a kind turn, and I hit like two very mediocre blue arrows, and then I missed oh no, I didn't have because it's Oldham, I didn't have the quiver of rustling leaves either. And it was just like, I needed that turn to be a lot better than it was. And it just wasn't. So I ended up kind of fizzling out. My other game against Oldham, I actually almost ended up winning. But I, I lost just barely. My opponent managed to crown into staunch response to stop my attack. But like, if he just had any three block, he was he was dead. And I think he was out of sinks. Um. So that was unfortunate. And I also previously had gotten Command and Conquered when I had a double arsenal and my hand was something like 
rain razors, rain razors, lightning press, and like, I don't know, like a lace or a premeditate. So like, not only could I not block it and I had to lose my double arsenal, I also couldn't do anything with my hand. Oh, that's, that's unfortunate. Holy. <laughs> and I still almost won the game. So like, I feel okay about the Ultimate Mantra, but I feel like I just got decently unlucky in both of the games and like in my first two games i kind of just rolled over them it felt um not particularly close Mm, yeah well command and conquer is a kind of card and because lexi has so many like two blocks and no blocks if it lines up badly you could you can't get blown out by that card yeah absolutely and he was on a more proactive list so it was like if they're on like a more fatigue plan then that sucks but you can kind of deal with it because there's not that much pressure it's more about like the threats in your deck and pushing through. But because he was playing more proactively, that really hurts and you really fall behind. And I, I did end up getting fatigued that game, but like, it, I don't know, it was more fatiguing through damage rather than blocking. And I think that I kind of had to, I had to kind of like waste a lot of resources to try and get back into the game rather than, you know, maximizing the value of all the cards in my deck. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then how did your draft go? I went 2-1 in draft. I drafted a Katsu deck. This Katsu, the, the draft was really wild. So I forget the exact order. I think I got like second, third, fourth pick was like in some order. Um, red, bond, red Bonds, Red Surging, Red Descendant, Gustwave. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a sick start. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm on Ninja. And then... The reason I say the draft was kind of wild is like, I'm not sure what the rest of the table was doing. Like, it felt like some people knew what they were doing and some people like, I have I have questions because I got past a fifth pick codex of blood rot. And it's sort of like, if you're not ninja, how are you not drafting codex of blood rot by pick five? Yeah, I that card is a little bit pretty it, that card is like insane like it's a basically a zero card two damage and those likes if you've played this format and if you played with the mythics then you should know that card's insane but there's a good chance that some people didn't know how good it was and they maybe evaluated it as like a two damage blockable card then if you think of it that way it's like it feels under rate but like this card this card is definitely above rate yeah so it was like a really strange draft. Just felt like the cards that going around were like coming up, like sometimes coming up in places I didn't expect they would. I'm not exactly sure of the pod breakdown. I'm pretty sure there was two ninjas though. Um, the, the packs in general felt like really weird. Like they just, I, I don't know what exactly it was about the packs, but it felt like it had like a lot of very good cards, but then there was also like weird stuff missing. Um, I think my Katsu deck ended up being quite good overall. Um, I'll tell you about the the insane parts about the deck. I had uh, a red bonds, two yellow bonds, and a blue bonds. I had Mask of Many Faces and Silken Ghee. I think I have uh, three Surging Strikes, two Descendant Gust Waves, Spinning Wheel Kick, um, a red Twin Twisters. These are all reds. Um, I have a red Short and Sharp red be like water so like my deck is very very good um the the awkward part about my deck though is that the blues are very very bad i'm running i have two of the ninja block threes and i think i only ever saw one uh, one other even though ninja was like clearly very open and then i have like a blue seek horizon which is fine and then i'm playing two blue brush offs and a blue 
uh, shuriken and I actually have like another blue shuriken in my sideboard that I'm not even playing. Um, so it's like six blues, three no blocks. Um, I, I think that the six, and I have like a couple other blues, like I have a blue bonds and a blue descendant, I think, which kind of makes sense because I want targets for the descendant gust wave anyways. Uh, or sorry, for the bonds anyways. And like it kind of works out because I'm playing more surging strikes. I don't need to Kodachi as much. I have some yellow um, zeros. But like, yeah, just like a very weird deck where like my reds are all insane and then somehow there's just like no blue three block ninja cards. It, it felt bizarre. <laughs> mm. do, you, do you think the other ninja player was just picking them pretty highly? I don't think so because it didn't feel like there was a ninja. It felt like the ninja was to my left somewhere. I don't think there was a ninja passing to me for quite a few seats, and I just really wasn't seeing them, like hardly at all. Mm, okay, okay. So probably just the pack curation kind of thing where it just didn't exist in the in the pod. Yeah. So I ended up going 2-1 overall. I think the deck was pretty good. Um, the game I lost, I lost to an Azalea, who was actually the person I was passing to. He picked up the Codex of Blood Rot, and he had this like Riptide Azalea deck, <laughs> essentially. He had like five or six Red Widowmakers. Like that's like another part of the draft that was just like weird. Like he had like six Red Widowmakers, and it's like wow, six, six Red, them. six yeah. Red Commons. It, yeah. It, it was really weird. Like, there's a lot of, like, repeat cards and then some cards you wouldn't expect to see and then some cards coming around late. Like, it just it felt like a weird draft. I don't well, know what it's, else to it's say. Also, it's also because when they announced the draft for the PT Baltimore, they said they're going to mix packs. I'm assuming yeah. they, like, dumped a bunch of boxes and, like, Japanese packs and Belgian packs together, mixed it up, and then picked them out. So you're not actually getting a, like, one box, right, where the... Yeah the um, what's it called the sheets the how the commons get cut basically you'll get a little bit of better distribution when you get when you only draft from one single box than if you were to like take two packs from like seven different boxes and then put them you'll get like a higher variance on what kind of cards gets opened yeah yeah exactly and i, I noticed quite a few people talking about how like their decks were like very good and also how the packs were very weird. So, I mean, I don't know how much of that is like people were expecting it to be weird because they announced it and how much of it is like it was actually weird. But definitely in my draft, it felt a little bit, it felt different than other drafts I've done. Um, but yeah, he had like a Riptide Azalea deck essentially where he was playing like 35 cards and he just presented on hits. Um, he won the die roll, got to go second, which was pretty significant into me and just like, block my surging strike attack with on hits that were like infecting shots withering shots widowmakers and it's just like mm, yeah just kind of getting riptided out and occasionally he dominated stuff it was it was interesting yeah widowmaker is a sick card against ninja like once you make a ninja player with like a bunch of two blocks forced to block with two cards in hand and then their hand just becomes like not great unless they're like on the pitch of blue kodachi kodachi spring low turns unless you do that every turn it's pretty tough to be a widowmaker every turn yeah exactly and i did have like a little bit of like i did have some like okay small turns but it just felt like i was consistently behind and i think i think the game like i might have had a shot into that deck if i go second or um alternatively if i managed to get my like surging 
Descendant Gustway Bonds turn earlier. But the way it played out, I ended up arsenaling uh, Bonds on turn two, a red one, and I didn't see my Gust Wave until like very late. And I don't think I even had targets left for it. And I was like also kind of too low to keep a big hand. So I think just between going second and then like seeing the cards I needed to see pretty late, it was just really hard for me to ever. I don't know. I just lost. I didn't feel like there was a lot to be done there. I think his deck just lined up very well into mine. And and you won the die roll. Yeah. Do you know which round that was? Like, was it your first game or was it your third game? It was my uh, second game of the draft. And I, I see. think he won, but I'm not 100% sure. That, that would make sense, though. If you have a bunch of Widowmakers, Withering Shots, and uh, if you can consistently dominate as well, that deck sounds pretty good. Yeah, it seemed like the deck was like... M- the reason I say it was like Riptide is it was like mostly just like good arrows. So he wasn't really like pumping up his attacks, but he was just, I don't know, like always able to block three, always able to present like solid attack with an on hit. I wonder what made him choose Azalea over Riptide then. Maybe he didn't have any traps. Yeah, he didn't seem to have. Did he play traps? I, I don't know if he played any or if he did, it was like one. Okay. Um, and he did do some amount of dominating, like a little bit here and there, but it was just less than what you would usually expect from from Azalea. That's fair, that's fair. Maybe he just chose to play Azalea over Riptide because of the, like, maybe one trap in the deck, and then, you know, he valued the one more health. That could be that could be a possibility. Yeah, or maybe he just, like, I also don't know if maybe he was worried about overcoming fatigue, and he felt like against Assassin, he can just, because, like, he can just dominate Widowmakers and... Honestly, that's good enough. You kind of run out of equipment to block it with. Yeah, if they block with two cards every turn, it ends up ends up not attacking for enough. Oh, I guess it's dominated. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah. So you went 4-3 in the Pro Tour. I, I know what happened, but why did you not end up playing Day 2? Yeah, so the way that it ended up working, I think it was 390 players. Um, the math on it was that it wouldn't be a clean cut at X3. There would probably be like one to two players that bubbled. Uh, it turned out that there were two players that bubbled. One of them was my uh, was one of my teammates, Ian Zhang, unfortunately. Um, when X3 had a great run, just didn't quite make it on breakers. And I think there was yeah one or two other players as well that bubbled. And because of that, I knew that I was for sure dead for top eight. There was just like getting losses that early. I think I had losses rounds three, four, and six. There's just no way that I would be live for top eight, even if I won out. And I think it was like, even if I X one, I'm not locked for top 32. There's a few top, there's a few X ones that won't top 32. And again, because my losses are so early, it's like if I drop around in like in my draft, for example, and then I win out the rest, I probably still don't top 32. And I just get like my best bet is like top 64. And and I think even like X2 was like if I X2 on day two, it's like sketchy to get top 64. It's like not not a lock at all. So it just felt like I needed to do very, very well on day two at the PT to still like get anything. And Whereas like the calling, if I did a similar record at the calling, which is also presumably like a little bit softer, was sort of my thought process, then that would be, you know, like a pretty good spot to try and top eight. And it was also nice that um, one of our locals, Eric, really wanted the calling package. So he ended up, uh, like he wanted all the goodies from it. So he ended up paying for the calling entry and the full package. And I just, I didn't have to pay uh, to enter the calling. And I think it was like, 
60 or $70 to enter. And I might have just played day two if I had to pay for a ticket. But because it was already paid for, I was just like, eh, I'd rather just have a fresh shot and see if I can do better than, I don't know, making the like $1,000 that I would probably make for top 64 was like the most <laughs> likely outcome. Okay, okay. So if it wasn't a free calling, you wouldn't have played it. Yeah, probably not. As it turned out, it was like kind of funny. There was 940 people registered for the calling and then some number dropped. I think it was like, oh, maybe it was like 980 and then 740 or 750 that actually played. But it, it was a huge calling. And I think I didn't expect it to be quite as big as it was. And, and so that was like, it was maybe harder to top eight that calling than than I had originally anticipated i thought it'd be closer to the calling leal but it was actually i think bigger so yeah the the number was very large when i when i was looking at it during the coverage it said like someone told me 950 players and i'm like that's ridiculous like that's actually just like a hard event to top eight it's even a hard event to top 16 or top 32 that event yeah exactly the way it worked out i i believe it was a no it wasn't a clean cut um you had to x2 to top eight and I believe one one bubbled, one person bubbled, um, yeah. which is actually somebody I know. So <laughs> sad. <laughs> There's a lot of bubbling uh, that happened um, in general for people that I know. Um, another teammate, Zane Johnson, uh, lost his winning in to the PT, and he ended up. Not only did he lose his winning in, but then he was 17th, so he didn't make top 16 prizing. Oh. No. <laughs> No, that's so, that's tragic. That's actually tragic. Yeah, it was that kind of weekend. Like, it just, like, honestly, overall, overall I think people did really well. Um, like, Nia had, a, Nia had a good start, and then day two didn't go his way. I had a pretty good run at the calling. We'll talk about that. Zane was, like, so close to top eighting. Ian got the record he needed and lost on breakers, and it was just, like, it was a good weekend. We did well, but it was also like slightly bittersweet. It would have been nice if even just, you know, one person had managed to to get there rather than all of us coming like so close, but then not. <laughs> and then getting the maximum, I guess the maximum punish for the, <laughs> you get you get like the lowest prize with the best rating kind of thing. 17th to 32nd yeah. got 1500 US the Pro Tour and uh, 16th got 3000. So you get, shacked half of your prizing basically <laughs> yeah definitely tragic <laughs> okay do you want to talk about your cc deck that you played yeah so i ended up bringing uh lexi no surprise um i think that kind of going into the meta we were expecting the big decks to be dromai oldham and lexi and that was indeed what happened. Uh, Lexi was the most represented, and then I think Dromai and then Oldham in that order, at least at the PT. I'm not sure about the calling. Um, and it was pretty much what we expected metagame-wise. I think that my takeaway from the meta is either Lexi or Oldham are the best decks, I think. They just seem to have the most well-rounded, I don't know, matchup spread of all the heroes. I think that Dromai is like close to them, though, and like definitely above the rest just a little bit of a challenge of being good into lexi and good into oldham at the same time i think you can do either one but like doing this both with the same list does seem to be a little bit challenging 
but still a very good deck. So anyways, yeah, I ended up registering a fuseless Lexi list. It was relatively close to the build in Chicago. I actually noticed that like a lot of people's lists were very close to the build that I had in Chicago. I think it was kind of like the base for most people. And then people were kind of had different takes on the sideboard and uh, some of those extra slots, which kind of makes sense because there's there's definitely some flex slots in the deck as well. Any notable cards from the deck that you want to talk about? Yeah, so maybe what I'll do is I'll read through the deck list uh, just very quickly and we can kind of talk about some of the some of the notable cards and some of the changes. So for equipment, uh, pretty standard. We have Bullseye Bracer, Findle Spring Tunic, Heart of Ice, which was there strictly for Kano, uh, New Horizon, both Quivers, so Abyssal Depths and rust- Rustling Leaves. Abyssal Depths for Fatigue Ultim, Rustling Leaves for every other matchup. I noticed some people cutting on Rustling Leaves, and I think that that is just strictly wrong. It doesn't come up all the time, but when it does and when it nets you a card, it's just so big. Like I think it came up in like four of my 12 calling games. I played 13, but 12 with this quiver. And if it's drawing you a card in a third of your games that like you just have an extra card because of three of a kind and you turn that into like a, an arrow that you wouldn't, and that's like a double arsenal that you wouldn't have gotten that's still like like drawing a card one in like if, if you have a card that's like doesn't take an equipment slot and it says like w- like roll a die if you roll a five or a six you draw a card you play that card 100 percent of the time because it's just like all it takes is one deck slot and it's insane when it hits yeah and i think that's what this card is if if you do that math on average, it just ends up being a plus one, right? Like if you consider one card being three three points of value, then it's it's just a plus one on your on the whole value of your equipment slot for free. So you just take that. It's you're adding like a one block value on 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 the quiver or rustling leaves on average, right? Like obviously yeah. there's a higher variance of like it's like scab scab skin leathers of like sometimes you just like get to like rule people because you roll a six and other times you roll a one and you lose rustling leaves similar to that but like on average you essentially just get one point on on this card so it's it's already insane like you you play you play like iron rot legs and oldham sometimes because you need that one point and and that's what this card is yeah and there's also some nice play patterns like into some of the aggressive decks, you don't necessarily want to load an arrow because committing two cards is scary and you can get hit pretty hard. But sometimes you also have like a hand that's not very good. Like maybe you have a bunch of blue arrows and you're not excited to play it. Just getting to pitch one blue to rustling leaves is like a relatively safe way to potentially get an arrow load and still be able to block nine, which means you're probably not really taking any damage. Um, you have to pick your spots. I don't think you always want to do this, but like certainly if your opponent like shows you like I don't know if they pitch to make a rune chant off of grasp like and they're playing briar, you can pretty pretty easily just do this and it, it's relatively safe for you to do. So I think that's like another line that I don't know if many people were doing, but I found that like there were spots going second where I was pretty happy to kind of gamble on that. That's fair. Well, it's a free card, and if you're expecting not to be able to use it later in the game, it's it's a good spot to use it. Yeah, the the, the way I would view this card is, like, you don't want to... If you can just, like, block for three, I would block for three rather than, like, try to rustling leaves. But it is 
a nice thing to be able to do if you just wind up with extra cards that you can't, can't quite use. And this does come up on like your three of a kind turns and it just is a consistency tool. So I think that people should be making room for this card. It's it's very, very good. And the uh, weapon of your choice was? Voltaire. Voltaire. And then I think it's the only real weapon for Lexi. Just so good. The go again and being able to go three arrows wide pretty easily is really strong. And the only boots we're running as snaps, I feel like Perch Grapplers is reasonable into, I might want into like Oldham and Katsu, or the main decks that I want into, but almost everywhere else I actually want snaps. I think that because of, because of the ponder, you end up getting a lot of value out of your snaps. Like sometimes you like Heat Seeker a Red Arrow, then you ponder a Red Arrow. And if it's, especially if it's kind of late into the game, like maybe you're both at like 20 or like 15-ish life, just arsenaling another red arrow is pretty good value on your snaps, right? Like it's worth an entire card. If it's a four for zero arrow, it's just worth four points, which is like very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that like you really want to be running snaps almost everywhere. And the matchups where perch is good is, is kind of limited. I know some people like it in the mirror. I think that's kind of wrong though, because I found what ends up happening is like, in the mirror, everybody's running, or most people are running six drill shots, and you end up just blocking their drill shots with your boots. Or like you block like the first relevant on hit you can see, but you don't really get to save it for the on hit that you really, really want to block because otherwise you have to like try and babysit your perch grapplers because their drill shot's going to tax your equipment, which is like really not great. <laughs> Did drill shot, drill shot had an aim counter effect, didn't it? What was the aim counter effect on drill shot? The aim counter effect is piercing one. So if they defend with an equipment, it gets plus one attack, but it always puts a minus one counter on the equipment as an on hit. So it's a very good arrow. <laughs> okay, so it basically forces the forces the equipment with drill shot. Yeah, and because you have so many breakpoints and on hits that like going through their equipment quicker is is really powerful. And I think basically every list was on reds and blues because it turns out just like, Having a blue that comes in for two damage with go again for one resource, like and and has like an on hit of messing up their equipment, it's pretty good. Like like sometimes they just block your blue drill shot with their grasp of the arc knight because they don't want to lose value on it and they don't want to give you a card. And it's just like, okay, I'll take that for my blue. Like that's pretty good. Yeah, that is pretty good. That is pretty good. Okay, let's uh move on to the main deck, I guess. Um this is a pretty basic list. We'll also put this deck list on the description on the on the podcast wherever you're listening to that. It should be there and on the com- not the comment, the description on YouTube as well. Yeah, and I think I'll be recording a deck tech and posting it as well in the next. I don't know, next few days or the weekend, one of the two. Um, I have a little bit of stuff to sort out, but but yeah, as soon as I can get around to it, I'm gonna post a full deck tech as well. Anyways, just running through the list really quickly. At red, we have two Arctic Incarceration, which I think most people were on, three Bolton Shot, two Command and Conquer, three Drill Shot, three Endless Arrow, three Falcon Wing, two Hamstring Shot, three Heat Seeker, three Infecting Shot, one Lace with Blood Rot, two Lace with Frailty, three Lightning Press, three Premeditate, uh, three Searing Shot, two Sedation Shot, and three Three of a Kinds. At yellow, we have three Bolton Shot, two Codex of Blood Rot, 
three Codex of Frailty, two Codex of Inertia, three Rain, ra three rain Razors, and two Tar Pit Traps. And then at blue, we have Bolton, three Bolton Shot, three Drill Shot, two Hamstring Shot, three Infecting Shot, three Searing Shot, and two Sedation Shots. So it's a total of um, 16 blues in the list. The So the blues basically never come out then, right? Because there's only 16 in the list? Yeah, the blues are pretty much locked. Um, we actually take one out against Dromai. Um, gen generally, so generally this list is running 42 arrows. It has access to 44 arrows in total. And usually in most matchups, we run 42. Sometimes if you don't have like that relevant sideboard cards, maybe you'll run like the 44. And into Oldham, we run all 44, but we're also increasing our deck size. Um, but into Dromai, we actually cut arrow count down to 39 arrows, and we cut like a blue and some of the red one costs. And the idea behind this list that I think kind of makes it stand out from a lot of other people's lists is that it's running a lot of um, kind of like pumps or like nimbleism style effects. So most people, or not even everybody, but a lot of people are on three premeditates. I think some people were not, which I think is a mistake. I think that this card is just very good. Um, and we're also on three lightning press and effectively three three laces. Um, the two frailties are to hedge into the mirror into the mirror. We have spots for two of those pumps in the mirror. We're always running the three premeditates, but we have spots for two lace with frailties in the mirror, and then the blood rod is just sort of like generally good. So this is a total of nine pumps. And we ended up feeling like this was very important into Ultim because sometimes if you just go like five 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 or like five five four, like some of them are fours. He's pretty well equipped to deal with that, especially if he's playing a bunch of defense reactions. And you can kind of get stonewalled, especially if they have um, like a fair bit of life gain in their deck. I think that the matchup's actually not great for you. And having these pumps lets you create bigger turns. And it lets you, like, one of the things that we found is if Oldham's only blocking, you can't actually go over the top of them with three of a kind. Like you can't use all your cards. You just have a whole bunch of arrows in your hand and you have no way to use them all. But having pumps to pair with three of a kind lets you do something like play premeditate, play lace with blood rot, play three of a kind, and then you're pushing, you know, like 20 plus damage on a three of a kind turn without using your rain razors, which are limited. Um, you only get the three of them. The other thing that happens here is that even though we're increasing our deck size to 66 against Oldham, and we're not adding any blues, because you're adding so many of these like nimbleism effects, you're actually lowering the curve of your deck. Your average hand is cheaper, and you have like, you can even sometimes have like functional all red hands. Like you can almost be like a, a baby Azalea where you go like play two or three pumps, Codex of Frailty, attack you with the infecting shot for like 14 or whatever. So... So yeah, I think that's like one of the things that makes this deck a little bit different from a lot of other people's. And I think that once we started adding the pumps, it really helped in both Oldham and Dromai matchups. And I kind of feel like it's the right way to take the deck forward. I think you want to be playing just more things with go again to allow you to have more six card hands and just let you kind of go over the top of these decks that are trying to block you. How many against Oldham? How many cards are you bringing in? Is it basically all the cards, or is it just the pumps and the arrows and the like? Is Tarpit Trap coming in? Is like Codex of Inertia is coming in? 
Yeah, so we're running all the codexes and all the pumps and all the arrows. We keep out cards like Tar Pit Trap, Arctic, and Command and Conquer. So those six cards stay out, but we're running uh, a 66 into them. Uh, so basically all the other kind of like relevant cards, I suppose. Mm. Why, why does Command and Conquer come out? It's just kind of clunky. Like when you're wanting to get, like when the main way you win is through Rain Razor's three of, our, uh, sorry, like big Rain Razor's turns or big three of a kind turns with a bunch of pumps, Command and Conquer doesn't really contribute to either of those game plans. And um, it can just kind of increase your inconsistency, I guess. Mm, so it's like a brick card to draw off three of a kind. Or like you can't really pitch stack it either because then you draw it again with three of a kind, which is really bad. Exactly, and and we're already diluting our arrow count a little bit. Like we're like normally we run run forty two and sixty, and we're adding two arrows and four non arrows. So we're actually slightly lowering the percentage of arrows in the deck already. And I think further doing that is not something you want to do. But but doing a little bit, being able to do that a little bit into the slow matchups feels like. You both get punished less for missing, and you have better ability to create six card hands and go over the top. Is kind of the the idea behind it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, let's uh, move on to the. Actually, we haven't even talked about your calling record yet. How was the? How was your calling? My calling went pretty good. I ended up finishing. So it was eight rounds on day two. Sorry, on day one into five rounds on day two, and you needed. I think you basically needed X and two to day two because I think it was X and two or 74, whichever was higher, but I'm pretty sure that X and two was higher than 74. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, you needed, you needed X and two. I went X and two in general. I think that the games felt pretty good. My losses, I lost round two to a friend of mine. He was playing Briar and it was just turn zero channel mount next turn play force of nature into rabble revealing swarming gloom veil and then just like kept hitting me with go again attacks and i think i like blocked with my hand went to 14 played an arctic and then he's like cool nice arctic pitch my blue to play sonata get a snatch and just like keep playing through it and i'm like yeah i'm never winning this game (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that sounds like an unwinnable game yeah, and I don't think it really matters what deck you are. I mean, maybe if you're a deck with a lot of armor, you might be able to stop it. But just, I think the only way I could stop his turn is if I gave him my tunic and my new horizon, and it was like he's still at like 30 life. And I'm just, there's just no way that that's the right play. Yeah, no, no, no way you can give up your new horizons on basically their first turn and, sorry, on their second turn and still win the game. That's like, no way that's happening. Yeah, so. Unfortunate, it happens. Um, I played a lot of very strong players in the calling, actually. I was like, there was a lot of people from the PT, a lot of people, like a lot of names that I kind of recognized and just, yeah, overall the competition was pretty stiff. Let's see, I kind of played a variety of everything. Like I played some, I think I played one Azalea. I played a mirror match against like an Ice Lexi. I played a boost dash played one Oldham, one Reinar. Uh, so, so yeah, just like a huge spread of decks out there. Um, 
the other game I ended up losing was to an Azuri. And I had played the matchup in the past. I think that this Azuri list was a little bit more aggressive than I was used to. Like they were running like nimbleisms and stuff like that. And um, I don't know. I think I sideboarded a little bit wrong. Like I had too many of the pumps in and not enough just like arrows and attacks that do stuff. And I got really blown out a few turns. Like he managed to shake down and take, like he Azuri'd in a shakedown, took my arrow. And then I like either couldn't pitch or I had to like attack with a blue arrow and put my pumps on a blue arrow. Like it was just like really bad. And I just felt like I got completely destroyed. That game was not particularly close. And I don't think I've lost that hard in a while. So <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, definitely have to revisit the Azuri matchup a little bit. I think that with better sideboarding and a little bit better play, I could have at least made the game closer. But but yeah, I got kind of stomped by Azuri, which was cool to see. It's not a deck that is super prevalent, I guess. Yeah, well, Azuri is still quite new. People are still working on the lists and um, people are always coming up with new stuff with Azuri. Uh, I've seen like six, seven different lists of Azuri playing wildly different cards with like wildly different plans. There's like super aggressive Azuri lists and there's like the Arachne style Azuri list. There's the, the, I don't even know what you call that one, but just like an Azuri list that does a little bit of everything. Yeah. And um, it's really hard to just, it's, it was like the old Oldham um, problem where you like, you played against an Oldham and you just didn't know what kind of Oldham there were. So you just couldn't sideboard properly ever. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like Oldham is still like that. And that's maybe the deck's biggest strength, but, but yeah. So you got one X2 at calling. Uh, how was your day two? My day two, I basically needed to win out five rounds. I ended up winning the first four. I had a game against a Reinhar in round nine or 10. And man, that game did not feel fair. Um, or, or who? If, I, I felt like I was doing very unfair things. He, so <laughs> I was just kind of like full gas all the time. And then there was multiple spots where I identified that like, cause he had been mostly blocking and then he would try and keep a hand or like block with a card. And I kind of identified that's probably blood rush bellow. And so after he had like blocked with one card and had started taking damage, I codexed him and then he had to like he has three cards, he has a pitch card, a codex, and a six power, and I'm just like codex you, give you a random like it doesn't matter whether it's inertia or frailty, it's like give you a card you have to discard, and he's like, I can't resolve this blood rush bellow. I think the first one was inertia, and so he just like couldn't use the blood rush bellow and just had to pitch it away. Wow. Like frailty also kind of like ruined him. Like it was just gross. Like it just taking him off of blood rush bellow turns was disgusting. <laughs> I've never thought of it that way, but yes, to play Blood Rush Bellow, you need to have three cards in hand, and if you codex them, and that card reads, if if you put like a card into your arsenal with that ability, you, they have to discard a card, so they can't keep their Blood Rush Bellow unless, I guess, they hit the Blood Rush Bellow into their arsenal off of the Codex of Inertia? Yeah. Oh, that's so gross. That's gross, Yuki. Yeah, it's really gross. Anyways, I don't mean to like say that I don't mean to like pick on this Reiner player in particular, but I think one big thing about when you're playing against Lexi is maintaining an arsenal uh, a little bit more often than you normally would so that you don't get caught off guard by these codexes. Because 
if you just have a full arsenal, yes, getting Codex of Inertia is inconvenient because maybe you have to play your arsenal and you weren't expecting to, but it is much less inconvenient than losing your Blood Rush Fellow turn because um, you don't have an arsenal and then something gets slammed in there and then you have to, then you kind of just can't do what you wanted to do. So I think that in general, um, something that like some players have kind of figured out and a lot of players are still working out is that you can play around codexes quite a bit by sitting on an arsenal a lot. I think it's something that players should be looking to do more when they're playing against the codexes. Then uh, how did your last round go? You went 4-0 and uh, started A2? Yeah, so my last round is against an Oldham player. I actually saw my friend uh, play against this Oldham. I noticed that he was quite proactive, like Stalagmite, Rouse, E-Strike kind of thing, like more of an older style Oldham list. So I ended up hedging my sideboard a little bit more uh, mid-rangey and having like a few less um, pumps and reach cards. And in particular, I took out some lightning presses. I think that was a little bit of a bit of a mistake. He ended up having more defensive reactions than I was expecting. Ended up playing like much more defensive and much more fatigue focused than I would have guessed, even though he did still have some of the threats like... Um, I don't know, like Spinal Crash, Endless Winter, Choke Slam, I believe. Like he, he was still playing attacks, but he also had a fair number of defense reactions as well. And I think that the turn that really ended up costing me was, I, so I, I don't win this match. I end up fatiguing. Um, I think the turn that really ends up costing me this game is one very early on where I set up I set up uh, Arrow in Arsenal, and I have a Rain Razors in Arsenal. And then he's going second because he wins the die roll, and he has Disruption. And I, and I draw up another Rain Razors, and I end up like having to block out, which is fine. I end up having to just kind of like sit on my Arsenal and wait for a turn to go off, which is fine. And I think my mistake is not pitching my Rain Razors in hand, because it's very hard to actually line up three Arrows with double rain raisers like th that second rain raisers is almost never as good as you want it to be and i think it's correct to just pitch it and what ends up happening is he has like kind of i don't know just like some guardian like blue attack and he ends up pummeling it and i have to choose between discarding my rain raisers or discarding one of my arrows and then having like this double rain raisers turn with only two arrows i end up discarding rain raisers and he ends up fatiguing me. I forget what his life total is at the end. I think it's single digit. And I, I think that if I have that Rain Razor still in deck at the bottom of my deck um, for second cycle, I should be able to close out that game. But because I chose to board out some threats and because I also end up discarding one of my Rain Razors because I think he's like aggressive and then he's actually has all these D-reacts, I just kind of um, I end up running out of gas. And yeah, um, so it's kind of like what you were talking about where you don't know exactly how to sideboard into Oldham or what to expect. I think that that kind of got me this game. I, I didn't quite evaluate his strategy correctly early enough. And I think I got a little bit greedy with that with that Rain Razors as well. Mm, that's fair. Well, it's also very possible that like that Oldham player did have some more aggressive cards in their list, but when they see that they're up against the Lexi, they board in more defense reactions and more just more defensive cards just to fit, like, have a chance to fatigue you and like 
because like traditionally against rangers their only threats are arrows they don't have a weapon so once you get rid of all the cards in their deck that's like the easy win for oldham and that's like that's how i would play oldham as well if i see a ranger is like level one would be like just make sure i have like more defense reactions more defensive cards to like you know stuff out their arrows if possible yeah, I, I think the stalagmite really threw me for a loop. In the past, everybody who's tried to fatigue me has been on Rampart, and I think you kind of need Rampart to fatigue Lexi most of the time. But I don't know. Yeah, I ended up losing pretty convincingly, and uh, partially to my own fault. But but yeah, well well played by him, and definitely kind of, I don't know, caught me off guard there and made me kind of misevaluate things. And I think anytime you can do that in Flesh and Blood, it's... Um, it's very powerful. Yeah, it's very yeah, it very is. good. I think stalagmite's fine if you still want to fatigue. It's it's like probably not as good, but still, it still does hamper you a couple turns. And then if you're playing spinal crushes or endless winters, then it could really it could really stop Lexi for a couple turns, and that might be all you need. I would play Ram, Ram's Head, but I wouldn't fault people for playing stalagmite. It's like when I was playing Fatigue Starvo. That's what I was playing, Stalagmite, and then people would just like do dumb thing against me and I just fatigue them out. Yeah, fair enough. It's still a very good shield, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it still blocks for three and gives you frostbites and turns you definitely don't want them. It's still sick. Yeah, no, it's definitely very good. So anyways, I end up losing what is my winning in. I would have top aided if I won because the player who bubbled, I, I gave them their second loss, so I definitely had better breakers than them a bit unfortunate but it happens i finished 13th overall um so still cashed still did well happy that i played the calling um of course disappointed to miss on top eight but it's still a strong finish so i can't complain yeah congratulations on top 13th on a 950 player field yeah great yeah <laughs> i don't know how anyone could be disappointed coming basically uh, not 10 percent, but what is that? Oh, no, no, the top 10%. Yeah, wait, wait, almost top 1%, top 2%. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I definitely felt good. It was just, I don't know. I felt so close and I felt like that matchup was very winnable had I made a couple of different choices. Greedy. Yeah, made a few different choices. I don't know. Flesh and Blood's hard and I think that's part of what makes it a good game is it, it's nice. It's nice being able to look back at your losses and like, like I think about my Azuri loss, I think about my Oldham lost, and I definitely could have played better. I definitely could have done things to, I don't know if I would win those games, but at least come closer to winning them. And that's a nice feeling. Uh, yeah, the Briar game happens and, you know, there are some games where you just get blown out, but, but for the most part, there's usually something you can do. And that's something I really enjoy about Flesh and Blood. I'm pretty disappointed. I didn't get to go to the... Baltimore in general it's just a little too expensive to go down there anyways so hopefully oh um before we talk about the next thing I heard there was a announcement at the pro tour about some limited callings next uh next season or coming up is that true did you hear about this I actually completely missed this <laughs> oh um I'm I have no idea if this is true or not because this is like hearsay and all I know is that there were a couple of people watching the um, watching the Pro Tour a lot more intensively than I was, and apparently there was gonna be a there were there was an announcement saying that there's gonna be the coming calling announcement. There's going to be a limited calling or a team limited calling. 
Ooh. And they also announced there's going to be a calling somewhere in Canada. Yes, I did hear about the calling somewhere in Canada. I didn't know. That one may or may not be limited. We don't know that. We just know that there is going to be a limited calling. That is really sweet. I'm very excited to hear that. I've, I mean, no surprise, but we like limited on on this podcast, and uh, yeah, excited to excited to have that be a thing. Honestly, I'm I'm like that's that one calling I'm definitely gonna show up to. Like, I don't care where it is. Actually, oh, what if it's in Asia? Would I go to Asia yeah, to play? True. Would you go to Asia to go play a calling, limited calling? Uh, maybe if it was in the summer and it was somewhere I wanted to go on vacation to anyways, then I probably would. But I wouldn't go to Asia just to play a limited calling. That's so, oh my god, you're so right. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be in the same boat. I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll be thinking if, if they announce one in Asia, I'll be thinking about going or not for a good while, I think. Yeah, that is pretty exciting. I think we have a decent shot of it being in North America between there being a Canadian calling that should be announced. And also we know that U.S. Nationals is going to have a calling attached to it. So I guess that's just to say that there's two callings coming up in North America. I think there's like a couple in Asia Asia as well, but still like decent odds. If Assuming that it's like one of those ones that's been mentioned and announced. Oh, also, one more uh, announcement from them. Did you hear we're doing Monarch Draft for Canadian Nationals? Yeah, I did hear about that. It's a um, it's an interesting decision. I don't hate it. Yeah, we've never had a competitive draft format or like a draft season with Monarch yet. Uh, neither is ARC and WTR, but... Yeah, I guess like New Zealand did have a calling, with which was Monarch Limited, but outside... Like they were able to do that because while everybody was in lockdown uh, at the time, they were doing very well. But I think the rest of the world did not get to have that experience. And I, I like we've we've drafted uh, Monarch Limited at our local game store. We've kind of gone through all the formats actually, and I like the set, so I'm I'm pretty excited about that. What about you? I'm pretty excited. The other thing I'm excited about is that we have content to go over again. Yeah, true. We'll have like kind of an extra limited format in there and then hopefully the following year i think it's supposed to be more limited sets than right than now, one a so. year <laughs> yeah so that'll be really sweet yeah that would be pretty sweet okay and i guess the last announcement to talk about would be the bandless announcement uh this is not up yet we're recording on may 2nd this is announced to come out on may 4th so in two days from now Oh, but it is New Zealand time, so it might actually be tomorrow potentially. It'll be, it'll be. I think it'll be the fourth. Like they don't do, they don't post it on like midnight of their fourth. They post it like midday on the fourth. I think so. Like it ends up being like sometime in the morning on the fourth or something like that. I think it will be like the evening for us. I think it'll be like nine or ten p.m. Any predictions for the men list? I suspect that they will either do no changes or something small to Lexi. I don't know what that would be. Um, I think that nerfing Lexi a little bit is not unreasonable, even though she didn't win the Pro Tour. I think she does feel very strong. But it's like also an interesting spot where even though Lexi is very strong and has a lot of very messed up cards, I almost feel like Oldham is gatekeeping the meta like 
just as much, if not more. I think that there are decks that beat Lexi, like we mentioned Azuri being quite good into Lexi. Azuri just cannot beat Oldham. And similarly, I think Azalea, I think that Lexi has a decent matchup into Azalea, but I also think that Azalea has a good matchup into Lexi. Like it's quite close. And if Azalea wants to tech to beat Lexi, she definitely could. The problem is, is that she just has a miserable matchup into Oldham. And I think that's why we didn't see her much at the Pro Tour. So it's this kind of weird situation where like, I think that Lexi is very good and like you could make an argument that she's too strong because she is doing some pretty like fundamentally powerful and unfair things. But I also feel like the tools to combat her are kind of being held down by Oldham right now. So it's, it's a very interesting spot. And I don't know if... I don't know. It was still a pretty diverse Pro Tour overall. And I... I'm unsure if something needs to get banned. I would be kind of surprised to see Codex get hit here. I actually think the card is very powerful, but okay. <laughs> you were gonna say something that was gonna I was gonna say something too, right? Because <laughs> Codex of Frailty is definitely a broken card. It's that card is not not close to fair. Uh, but oh, yeah. uh, but I think the the text on the arrow itself where it says this card cannot be played from hand and you have to have a, what's it called? A bow? Yeah, a bow. You need to have a bow to fire it. Basically, it means that, like, it self-checks itself on, like, how powerful Codex of Frailty can get. I'm pretty sure Codex of Frailty will get banned someday. I don't know if, if it's going to be May 4th announcement they're going to ban it or if it's going to be maybe six months in the future once uh, they print the next supplemental set with some kind of broken ranger card or some kind of broken assassin card. I have a feeling the Codex of Frailty might not get banned here either. Um, but I think that card's going to get banned someday for sure. It has to get banned someday. That card's too good. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me for it to get banned eventually either. But I also feel like we've seen decks with very powerful cards like Blood Rush Bellow and Brute comes to mind as just this like... Like Blood Rush Bellow is really, really absurd, but also like it, the, the context that is surrounded by matters. And I think like you said, um, it's somewhat self-checking. And I think the other reason that I don't know if I believe Codex of Frailty will get banned is that even though the card is very good in Lexi, I actually think the decks that get hurt the most is Assassin and Azalea because Assassin and Azalea pretty much exclusively play Codex of Frailty. Whereas Lexi, like in my list, I'm running seven Codexes and I'm running two Inertia, two Blood Rot, and those Codexes still function well. The only reason I'm not running nine is like you just don't really want nine of them. It's too much of that effect. But I kind of feel like if you ban Codex of Frailty, like, yes, it does make Lexi worse, but Lexi will still play a bunch of Codexes and it will actually just end up hurting Assassin and Azalea like more. And so I just, it just doesn't like, I don't, I don't think it does what you want it to do, I guess. Look, the only thing I'm, I know is that it feels awful when your opponent plays a Codex of Frailty. I don't really care, like, if these decks are like getting worse or or whatever, just like when an Azalea player plays a Codex of Frailty and you get the Frailty token and you you have a weapon, it feels so bad. It's just like, I don't even care how like, you know, how good these decks are right now. It's just like, 
the feels bad moment when someone plays a codex of frailty is like pretty big it feels like an awakening you know like you played you play an attack you had some sick turn and then the olden player and blitz before just played an awakening and came at you for 14 for like no resources and you're just like what happened like this is like just fundamentally not fair yeah that is true i won't deny that (laughs) (laughs) it's it's like it's like a little bit of like that feels bad moment of like oh you did everything it's like blizzard you know how that card was like pretty good for like i think it was like a good card as like it there was play around to it there was like the card wasn't like insanely powerful it didn't block it was just like it had like all the right properties for it to be like just a good card not too broken but then it just felt so bad when you got blizzarded it just felt so bad <laughs> i mean you can still blizzard people is that card not banned no are you but- thinking of hypothermia oh is it hypothermia that's banned hypothermia is banned because of icelander instant speed hypothermia okay well either way though all of those cards still feel so bad i thought blizzard was hit where did i see the nope. ban list you can still play it rules and policy people just are choosing not to play it card legality oh blizzard is not banned wow yeah oh and hypothermia is is suspended and constructed oh, okay okay yeah suspended because of icelander Hmm. okay okay that makes sense that makes sense uh, yeah, I guess there isn't that much go again attacks nowadays anyways. Yeah, as a case of like Lexi has go again, but she also has a lot of resources. So like Blizzard often doesn't really do what you want it to do. But hypothermia will stop it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That makes sense. Also, Lexi just has New Horizon. So like some amount of the time when you get Blizzarded, like you can still like Arsenal, like you like, I don't know, you usually don't get stranded with cards quite as badly as as other decks. Okay, um, anything else you wanted to talk about today? No, I think that can more or less wrap us up. That was sort of how PT Baltimore went. So yeah, uh, as always, thanks for listening. You can get in touch with us at onthebobble at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, Jay is at Ueda Jay and I'm at Yukili Bender. And um, yeah, feel free to reach out to us and just give us any feedback or questions you might have. Um, what I'd like to hear about in the comments this time is how was, if you went to Baltimore or even if you just watched it, what is your overall like experience with the PT and maybe the metagame as well? Are you, are you a fan of this metagame? Do you like the way that it is? Do you think something needs to get changed? Um, maybe highlights from the weekend or the event? Was there like a match that you really enjoyed watching? Anything kind of related to the the Pro Tour weekend and your impressions of it. We'd love to hear about it in the comments. Um, But until next time, thanks for listening and good luck at your upcoming Road to National events in a few weeks here. Okay. Oh, wait. One one more thing, one more thing. Before before we go into your sign-off and... I was wrong last week. I was talking about the assassin blocking, uh, uh, using Fleetfoot Sandals on a blocking card that has one power. Uh, apparently, how Fleetfoot Sandal exactly reads, you cannot activate Fleetfoot Sandals on a blocking one power attack action card. Because an attack action card, blocking is not an attack. Yeah, okay. That makes yeah. sense. That That's what I wasn't sure about when we talked about it, but yeah. Good yeah. to know. If if the if the Fleetfoot Sandal reads attack action card, then that would work. So like you can snap dragons your opponent's one power blocks. 
but you can't fleet foot sandals your opponent's one power blocks. Gotcha. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it's it's like the that very like it's if it's an attack action card, then you couldn't use it on on um on a spider's bite on the stack. But like if I think conversely, if the for whatever reason the spider's bite lost its target on the stack, I have a feeling that you can't use Snapdragon uh sorry, Fleetfoot Sandals on the on the spider's bite either because for an attack to be an attack you need to have an attack target it's, it's just some some very edge cases in the rule book that i was uh that i was reading <laughs> up and uh it was uh i had a discussion with a couple of people and then we came to the conclusion you cannot use fleet sandals on a blocking card and there are other edge cases that come up because of this but that is for you to figure out when it when you come across it, <laughs> hmm. interesting. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Okay, and uh, I know you have a sign off you really wanted to talk about, so go ahead. Yeah. So overall, had a great PT weekend. I enjoyed myself. The one part that was not so great was um, my flight. So my flight there. I have a flight from. Vancouver to Toronto, and then Toronto to Baltimore with a three-hour layover. On my way from Vancouver into Toronto, so my first flight, um, I'm getting on. I'm actually a little bit like getting to the airport, um, rush through security. I get to the gate on time. I'm I'm there. I line up. Um, and then when I get to the bridge, they tell me that the overhead bins are full and they need me to check my bag. Um, I try and say, can I please try to put it on? They won't let me. Um, they then say that they're going to check the bag, and I say, okay. Um, and I'm kind of standing there waiting for my bag tag. I go, okay, I'd like my bag tag. And they said, okay, yeah, don't worry. We're getting it. It's coming. Um, they, they seem very disorganized. And I was just kind of waiting at the entrance of the plane for my bag tag for several minutes, and which point they kind of said, um, okay, your bag tag's coming. It will be just a moment, but we really need you to sit down so that we can take off. Um, if you're ever in this situation, make sure that you get your bag tag first because what ended up happening is they just took off and I didn't get my bag tag ever. So I mentioned this to the stewardess. She's not able to help me. Um, I ask what I should do. She says, go talk. Actually, the pilot tells me, go talk to um, the gate agents when you get into Pearson, and they can look up your bag and, and try and find information about it and where it's going. I get to the gate agents um, where we land in Pearson, so that's Toronto, and they say, well, I kind of explain what's happened, and they go, well, unfortunately, it doesn't look like they've tagged it properly because there's no checked bag in your name which is a disaster and basically it means that they can't track it because it's not in their system so what they suggest is they say well you should go to the baggage claim you have some time because of your layover and there's like a decent chance that it just shows up at the baggage claim because it was on your flight and they'll just like unpack it with everything else and i went okay that makes a lot of sense so I go to the baggage claim, doesn't show up. Mm -hmm. At this point, I'm like kind of realizing that it's pretty 
bad for me. I don't have a tag. I don't even have like proof that this has happened. Um, there's no way for them to track it. I talked to the person at the baggage claim area and he says, oh yeah, you can, uh, you know, the the thing to do is check to show see if it shows up in Baltimore and then you can file a missing bag claim or whatever um, in Baltimore. And I go, can I just file it here? Because I don't see how it's going to wind up in Baltimore if it's not tagged and they don't know where to send it. But he says, no, 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 it has to be at your final destination. That's the protocol. I go, okay, for sure. Go to Baltimore. Unsurprisingly, it does not show up at the baggage claim. There is a person working for Air Canada in the baggage claim. She gets me to fill out a form. Um, the form is just like on a clipboard. She doesn't have a desk or anything. She's just like walking around with a clipboard. I fill out the form. She hands me the carbon copy. Upon looking at it, I realize that it's ripped at the top, so a little bit of information is missing. I also realize that because she has them all stacked on a clipboard, you can see like it's, you you can't really read it because you can see some of the ghosts from people like writing and pressing hard before. <laughs> so you like see like multiple things written layered on top of each other, and it's just impossible to decipher. Like I've gotten multiple people to look at it, and nobody has any clue what it says. um i tried to go i'm kind of like walking away and i I noticed this within like a couple of minutes i tried to go back she's already left i tried to go upstairs to the air canada desk there's nobody working at the air canada desk i try phoning the air like at this point like i'm looking online at what to do i try because we're, we're waiting for someone anyways and I try phoning online or looking online. I try making a phone call to their customer service. And they say, we can't help you unless you have a bag tag or you have the incident report number. And I have neither of these things. And they say, well, and I say, well, can you help me? Because I can't, like, I have no way to get these things. And I need to file a report. And they go, well, no, that has to happen at the airport. But there's nobody at the airport that, can I, that I can file the report with. So it's incredibly frustrating. Um, I try and explain this to like a few different people. They all give me the same answer. One person finally tells me to phone another number and they can help me. I phone that number, navigate through their very terrible phone menu. And I get to the point where it says, talk to an agent. And I go, yes, talk to an agent. And it just, whenever I press that button, it just loops me on the menu saying, press this button to talk to the agent and I don't actually get to talk to anybody. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was just like, like it was just a complete disaster. Really, really unimpressed with Air Canada. I still have not gotten my bag. I do not think that I am going to get it due to all the circumstances. Um, it just seems incredibly unlikely, and I don't think I'm going to get re-comp- uh, reimbursed or compensated in any way because I don't have a bag tag showing that they took my bag in the first place, and is, their customer service won't help me. Is it possible for you to like claim your ticket money back from the place you bought it from? So if you use something like Expedia or if you use something like... Whatever, whatever site you use to like book your flight, you can maybe go through them to try and get some money back from them. 
You know, I haven't considered that. It's worth looking at. I think I might have booked it through Air Canada, though, so I might just be screwed. Or conversely, you could also just try claiming it back through your credit card. That that might work as well. Oh, that's not a bad idea. Maybe I can do that. You can basically whenever you have a problem and you've already talked to the the place that you had a problem with and they don't want to give you your money back, you can always contact through your credit card and then have them charge you back because they can always just be like, no, we're not giving them the, them your money. Um, so you could try that if you actually have a problem and, you know, it's you losing a bag is huge. <laughs> like, well, what was in it, actually? I didn't even, I actually don't know what you lost. Um, the biggest thing that I lost was my laptop, which is very unfortunate. They're actually not even supposed to check something that has a laptop in it. But anyways... My laptop, I don't have I don't have quite a few different clothes. I had like a jacket in there, some sandals, um, the bag itself, of course. So not fantastic. If I had to estimate, I probably lost like fifteen hundred dollars worth of stuff. Mm. Which is really shitty. Yeah, I would I would be pissed. But uh yeah. at least you didn't lose your deck, so you didn't uh you still got to play at the PT? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't put my cards on my carry-on, and I never, ever would. Um, yeah. yeah. Always... I always keep it on my personal item with me because, like, even if, like, you fall asleep or something, you don't want somebody going through your stuff, and yeah. Yeah, it's just, like, not a... You just always carry your cards with you, mostly when they're valuable, just, like, and... When you are traveling to these events, just always keep your bag with you. Don't leave it to go to the washroom or whatever. Just carry it with you. It's not that big of an issue if it's like a small bag. Um, and yeah, just losing your bag could be a disaster in any of these big events. Like you go to like a calling somewhere you don't know and you lose your bag. Just assume you're not going to get anything back. Um, even if you file a police report, they're not going to be able to do anything for you. And if you lose your deck or your cards or your collection, like that could be like, depending on how much stuff you have, like if you lose, like, I know you have some gold foil equipments, right? That you had with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like losing that would be like huge. Like you can't just replace that easily. And those are hard to find. So just like be careful when you are handling your own cards and same thing with like laptops and stuff like that. Yeah, it's sort of funny. Like I had sort of thought as I was sitting down, I'm like, oh, I wish I had grabbed my laptop. And then like, sure enough, that happened. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's super unfortunate. Um, You can maybe try and take it to Twitter. Maybe the Twitter, the Twitter Canada Post, not Canada Post, Canada, Air Canada might be able to help you better than the customer service. (laughs) But uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's it's super frustrating. I will say that like there's like there's one. I've, I've basically done everything I can do at this point. There is one like very small glimmer of hope, and that um, I, I won't say who because I don't want this person to get a bunch of messages. But somebody um, well known in the Fab community, I, I happened to sit next to them on my flight, and. Apparently, they used to work for Air Canada, and they know the person who handles like all the lost bag stuff, and and so they've kind of t- 
talk to that friend of theirs and they have somebody looking into it. So I, I think that they're trying to do like a more thorough investigation and hopefully find it. And just usually the way these things work is if if you have the right connections to have somebody who cares a little bit more and is putting in some effort, that usually goes a long way. But it's still a very um it's still just very difficult for them to find because it is not tagged and they have no tracking on it. So it's still a very difficult task, but there is at least some so small amount of hope. I got in touch with them just yesterday. So maybe, so maybe. So, so you're telling me if I randomly buy like a lot of bags, like lost baggage bags from an airport, they might have a laptop in it. I suppose that is possible. Okay. Why, why, why VR? Why VR? Why VR lost baggage? Buy like a crate of lost baggages and there might there might be one laptop worth like a thousand dollars. Well, it was worth a thousand dollars when I purchased it, but it's a few years old now, so it's probably not worth a thousand anymore. Ah, you can flip it for some money. <laughs> okay. Next well, week on the podcast, Jay's going to be trying to sell me my laptop back. <laughs> That'd be so sick. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. Okay, I think uh anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up then? No, that's about it. Um I hope that if any of you did travel to Baltimore, your travels went well, that you got there safely and all your stuff was in intact and uh yeah, I hope you had a good weekend and Good luck to all of you in your upcoming events with Road to Nationals, you know, just a few weeks away.